Hello, everybody. Kyle here, and welcome back to the Chaos and Shadow podcast. I am joined here by my co-host, Pagan. Hi, Pagan. How you doing? Doing wonderful. How are you doing? I am doing very well. I am very excited to introduce the guest we have for today's episode, Michelle Bellinger. She is an author, psychic, and a cult expert, a presenter, a singer, media personality. We first discovered her back on A&E's Paranormal State, and we've been keeping up with her expeditions through travel channels, portals to hell. She captivated us even further during her presentation of the Hidden History of the Occult at Greg and Dana Newkirk's Phenomenicon. Michelle, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. Hey, thank you for having me. We are very excited to take some time and just pick your brain on a multitude of subjects. Uh, first of all, I will compliment Pagan for doing a fantastic job of coming up with questions for the long list of amazing work you have under your belt. Michelle, you're not you're, you're you've been around the paranormal space and have made such a name for yourself. I these questions are going to go a little bit all over and try and give our audience a good encapsulation of your career. So I thought maybe first we could start talking about your book, The Psychic Vampire Codex. It's been a guide of inspiration and fascination for many, but for our listeners that might be unfamiliar with psychic vampires, could we talk a little bit about them? Because we've teased them here and there throughout our podcasts. Totally. So most folks know me as a psychic because of my work on the various shows, but what they don't know is a significant part of my psychic ability is also what you would call a psychic vampire or an energy vampire. Uh, I, I pick up the energy from from human beings, uh, their, their vital energy, uh, partly because I have a need to take it. And I, I, I figured that out and struggled with it through my early teen uh, years and 20s. Uh, because at the time, there were books that talked about people who had this ability, but they only talked about them in terms of how to protect yourself against them. They assumed, like right across the board, that anybody who took the energy of others, whether they needed it or not, were doing it as an attack. We're doing it because they were bad, nefarious people. Uh, but but here I am going, yeah, I, I do this, and it's pretty clear that, like, that I need to do this, but like I can choose to do it with consent, and does that make me a horrible person, and, and what does that mean? Uh, so from about 1991 onward, I, I set out to uh, observe, talk with others, and write my own manual for, for what this was, what it meant, and, and mainly, especially, how to do it in a consensual fashion so that it wasn't necessarily bad for anybody, so that it was actually just a, a give and take. And I think for me, the, um, the most enlightening thing was having a conversation with a first-generation Chinese-American. Uh, and, and if you're familiar in, in a special, especially traditional Chinese medicine, there's the concept of qi, which is mm -hmm. life force and breath. And, you know, it, it, we get it from the natural world and you work with it in martial arts and Tai Chi. And I was asking him, like, do, do you have like a cognate? Because I know that there's folkloric vampires um, that are similar to like the vampires that you find in Eastern Europe-ish. But do you have a cognate for a psychic vampire, for somebody who takes human vital energy? And he sort of chuckled. He's like, well, not as such. Like, we have people who have high chi and people who have low chi and you just share chi and everybody's fine. Like you don't make a big deal about it. And, and and for me, that was kind of like the defining moment, realizing that why this was a struggle for me and for people like me was our culture simply didn't have context for it. So I did my best to explore it, give it a little bit of context. And the thing about the Psychic Vampire Codex was it I made certain it was the first book that I, I pushed to have printed by a third party publisher. Like I led with that because I felt it needed to be out in the world. That is a wow. very, yeah, that's that's a very interesting, uh, like, reasoning behind it. And I, I totally empathize with that idea that our cultural settings uh, and our maybe lack of, of verbiage, our lack of, you know, words in the lexicon to describe it. I couldn't imagine paving that way. That's so interesting. So moving along here, talking about mm -hmm. psychic vampires, we, in our talkings uh, with some of our people in chat... We have portrayed them, I would not say as negative, because we've always referred to it as that sort of exchange. Could you talk, Michelle, a little bit more about the consent and such that goes along with this? Like, what is there 
healing that might happen to those that are having that energy taken from them? Is this something that just then benefits you as a person? Could you talk a little bit more about that? Oh, yeah. Um, So, I mean, obviously, when we're talking about like negative psychic vampires, people Mm -hmm. usually who are unconscious about taking it, it feels like an attack because, of course, you haven't given consent. But the difference is the same. Uh, It's a difference between, you know, touching someone against their, their will or giving them a back rub that they have, you know, fully invested in. So when you, you take energy from another person, culturally, we are kind of programmed to think that taking is automatically negative, that you're mm-hmm. stealing, that you're removing something. But if, you, if you've if you ever, like, grown plants, um, you know, do herbalism or anything like that, we, we know that if you pluck small amounts from your herbs and any kind of plants, you prune them, they grow back stronger. Like, like taking off the old growth helps to inspire new growth. Mm-hmm. And that is one of the symbiotic parts of a vampire donor relationship. Uh, somebody who needs to take energy is paired with someone who has a little bit too much or maybe way mm-hmm. too much. And they can't usually easily get rid of it. They're often overwhelmed by it. It is as detrimental to them to have too much as it is to someone like me who doesn't automatically have, have enough to keep going on. And so that that give and take renews and refreshes them as much as it sustains the person who's a psychic vampire. That's incredible. That's so interesting. And it's true. We as a society have had so much negativity that has basically been bestowed upon us that vampires are bad, psychic vampires are evil. Everybody is just these horrible individuals that just want to hurt us. But ultimately, you have gotten to this point that you've showed us that the vampire community is not bad. Psychic vampires are not bad. I would say ultimately the only ones that would be quote unquote classified as bad would be the ones that are just unaware that they're doing it. Would you agree with that? I I will also say that there is a small subset of people who are very aware of what they are doing and they do it without consent and they don't care. And those are the ones that I'm more inclined to say are bad. Uh, There's a couple of um, not too obscure occult societies that teach people how to take other people's energy with the express purpose of preying off of them as kind of a power trip. And that's Mm -hmm. where it's like leans into my definition of bad. I'm I'm even willing to to forgive the folks who are unconscious about it, because if they don't know what they're doing, uh, it's not like there's any intentional harm. They're they're still causing harm. But, you know, it, it just takes sitting down, sitting them down and having a conversation with them. The hardest part, of course, is that the word vampire, like we don't have a better word in the English language for someone who feeds on life force. Like that's sort of the word we're stuck with. Uh, mm-hmm. And we, we haven't had the same level of reclaiming that we've had for the word witch, where, mm-hmm. you know, 50, 100 years ago, and if you go back to folklore, witches were bad. They were nasty old wizened women who made pacts <laughs> with Satan and sold their souls and cursed their neighbors, yada, yada, yada. And we, we all know that that's not the case now, that there are witches who are wonderful people. Dana Newkirk is a fantastic example. Yes. People practice witch, witchcraft. It's not cursing. In fact, it's generally very positive, very generative. Mm-hmm. And the same is true for, for vampires, where we've got this folkloric and this sort of pop culture image. And the word is packed with a lot of baggage. Mm-hmm. But the reality for the people for whom, like the real modern living people, where this word is part of their identity, they're, they're not Dracula. They're not the, the Virkalakis that are rising from the dead and trying to, like, suck all their neighbors dry. So. <laughs> yeah, That's, that is the that is the comment. It's hard to unbind those two words. You're very right. Yes. Vampire is synonymous with Nosferatu and all the other very strong imagery that is all about theft, stealing and kind of pillaging what they take. But that is not at all mm-hmm. that vibe that I get. And I really I, I like that reference um, to the more Asian style of of chi because it's true that many other cultures just work with that as a natural energy that's there that can be moved around. But good good call out, Michelle. I didn't even take I didn't, it hadn't even clicked with me that we lack that terminology to to do that sort of exchange here. So yeah, and it's 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 been neat watching um, when I first was kind of like coming out writing the books, like really helping to build the vampire community as it exists. The vampire and witchcraft community were starkly at odds uh, because witches were were still really fighting to define themselves as separate from Satanism, uh, you know, as the height of the, of the satanic panic. And so anything that seemed dark or could be interpreted as 
predatory or destructive was was not okay. Uh, and I love that now in the year 2020, with all of the other horrible stuff that's going on, uh, I, I can not only have wonderful and productive conversations with witches of all stripes, we can realize that most of what we've been doing the entire time functions on the same mechanics and same principles. We're just coming at different uh, identities, different different ways of working with uh, the energy of the world around us from, from different perspectives. But but in the end, uh, it's it's all it's all toward the same greater good. Absolutely that is so amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Hagen, why don't so you, amazing. Why don't you go ahead? You got some questions coming up here I for Michelle. These are good ones. Questions. Um, so I actually didn't know you were a psychic vampire until I actually watched the episode of Monster Quest that you were on. Oh and yeah, they just re- redid that. Yeah, and so I, I had to go into the history vault to watch it, but I actually got to understand more about you, obviously, and the vampire community. And could you tell us more about how you work with the vampire community? I'm presuming that you still do. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, for, let's see, from about 1996 onward, I was one of the primary media liaisons for the vampire community, uh, which was to say that every time uh, somebody shot up a school and they wore black and they had a like a profile on vampire freaks and somebody wanted to say that it was vampires, or some kid ran away with her boyfriend and her dad found that she had vampire fan fiction on her thing and decided that clearly she'd been abducted by a cult of blood-drinking vampires. I was the person who went on TV, radio, and in in one case, CNN headline news uh, to explain what the community was like, what we Mm -hmm. actually did, uh, and and basically advocate for us. I worked with a number of other folks within the community, as well as researchers like Dr. Joseph Laycock, uh, DJ Williams, Dr. J. Gordon Melton, who were researchers, uh, anthropologists, sociologists, religious studies scholars who studied us from the outside uh, to present what our community was actually like, that it was an identity community, uh, that it is adjacent to like religion and spirituality and like the, mm-hmm. the modern mystical movement would very loosely, not necessarily by the vampire's perspective, fall under the blanket of modern New Age movements and new religious movements. And is not, uh, you know, a sociopathic negative breeding ground for wannabe serial killers, which unfortunately was was often how they tried to portray us, especially in the 90s, um, particularly because of the satanic panic and everything that was going on back then. Um, Yeah. Oh, go sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> I, I was just going to comment on that, but please continue. My apologies. Well, I was just going to say, like the probably the highest profile person that that I worked with, who who grew out of our community as well as the magical community, who is a really the poster child for how the satanic panic ruined his life, is my friend Damien Eccles, who mm-hmm. was typified as the ringleader of the West Memphis Three and was uh, spent 19 years on death row. Oh wow. Uh, he's he's been released, uh, but like they they got railroaded, and and mainly they got railroaded into what they were accused of because they were the weird kids in West Memphis, uh, and they were black. And Damien, particularly, uh, because he was involved in the magical community and the early vampire community, they really had a field day with just assuming that that meant he was responsible for this really terrible thing that happened out there. <sighs> Yeah, and my studies of the Satanic Panic, I, I and I admit that's that in itself is a fairly, uh, it's a concept I myself didn't live through as a, a an early '90s baby. I I got away without that, and I feel like by the time my interest in the paranormal had really sprung up, I I don't think it gets talked about as much as it should, especially these days when we're still using all kinds of different panics to scare people. But the satanic panic had a really, really detrimental cost to the people that were uh, Mm -hmm. practitioners back then, or even not practitioners from everything I've heard. Those that had nothing to do with it were still criminalized and have horrible things happening. I'm very sorry to hear that about Damien there. It, it was it was a pretty difficult time, but at the same time, for for folks like me, it's it's one of the things that fueled my my need and my desire to build a community, to make a safe space, and also to be an advocate, an activist, uh, and and 
find a way to communicate to mainstream society and kind of build a bridge between what seems to be, you know, a society on the fringe, whether it is the vampire community, the pagan community, uh, the, the folks who practice the from you know, various aspects of the African, African diaspora, like all of the uh, not wasp <laughs> things, because pretty much the satanic panic was only white Anglo-Saxon, only white Anglo-Saxon Christian stuff is okay. Like everything else is satanic. Mm -hmm. uh, you from your heavy metal music to your your witchcraft to <laughs> yoga, like all of it. You're you're going to hell for all of it. Um, but but finding a way to educate people and introduce them to the fact that just because your neighbor looks a little different, just because their clothes are black, or you think that like they don't they don't go to church every Sunday. Oh my goodness, what might they be doing? Oh, I don't know. Hugging a tree, for goodness sake, get over yourselves. <laughs> <laughs> thank, oh my goodness. thank you, Michelle. Thank you for being someone out there that, that is that is uh, doing that pioneering or, or it, it means a lot as someone mm -hmm. who identifies himself as a gay man. And seeing you back on on TV, shaking up things back when we were watching Paranormal State all those years ago, it 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 leaves it it leaves something and it makes a change. Like I, I I can't say exactly. I guess maybe it would be in some ways that representation, seeing yourself in other places and on television, having other people just um, exposing that lifestyle. But I will say, in in all these years of hindsight. Uh, that that probably all the work that you did did something that that worked out and I can say it touched me personally and in a way brought us where we are right here now talking to you so a personal thank you for doing that no that's awesome no rep rep representation matters and and certainly the one thing that I determined in 1996 and onward was I would not compromise or hide who I was any aspect of it um, mm -hmm. and while the word psychic vampire didn't really come up at least in any of the finalized episodes of Paranormal State, like it was, it was talked about. It, everybody on the team knew about it. Uh, it's not like I ever hit it. Wow, that's amazing. And as far as I know, I'm the only intersex person um, who's like working like openly in the in the paranormal community, at least in any of the shows. Mm -hmm. I did not know that. That is great. I didn't either. That's amazing. We would wow. love, Peggy, you got some good ones about the dictionary <laughs> of demons. This is very exciting. I do. I, my Fun mind stuff. is just kind of blown at the moment from everything we've already discussed. And I'm just kind of like, can we just keep letting her talk? She's wonderful. <laughs> my, my bingo card of weird is full. It's, it's, I've made bingo several times across the thing. Like... Oh my goodness, that's so amazing. Well, I just started digging into the new edition of Dictionary of Demons. Um, I, I will admit that I was you know, having some trepidation when I was looking at it, I'm like, oh, this, this book may not be for me. I'm not really sure. And then I started digging into it and I was like, okay, this book is totally for me. It's amazing. So that being said, can you tell us what inspired you originally to write the book and give our listeners insight into the new updated version? Because I know there's what, like 200 new pages in between the versions or something like that. Yeah, it's, it's an enormous <laughs> extra chunk of stuff. So there's there's actually two inspirations. Um, the very, very first inspiration for it was it started life as a spreadsheet that I kept for myself as a gaming reference um, and as world building for, for writing and, and fiction. So I, I had a bunch of like the 70, 72 Goetic Demons and a bunch of other names and things. And, you know, I just had that kicking around on my computer like you do when you've been playing D&D &D since you were of 10. Course. <laughs> but... The, the real reason to put it into a book and to, to make it accessible in the form that it's in came from a conversation with Father Bob Bailey. Uh, mm -hmm. And it was, we were both out on the East Coast. We were not working on the same episode, and it just so happened that they booked episodes that were within driving distance of one another. So he was on a demonic case, or at least one that they assumed was, could, was demonic. And I was on, uh, I think it was, I, I don't remember which one it was. Um, but the end result was we were in the same hotel. And he was just kind of like, you know, chilling out in the lobby and he'd had a really rough day with doing his deliverance stuff. And we started to shoot the shit. And uh, he, he, he just said, I just I wish there was a book, like some resource I could check for when they give me their names and I can see if they're lying or if I can see if this name exists anywhere. Oh, and I was smart. like, oh, oh 
well, I've, I've, I've got, have, have you heard of this book? And he, he kind of like looked at me blankly. I'm like, how about this one, this one, and this one? Because I, at that point, I had been collecting like some of the medieval grimoires. I mean, obviously not in like the 15th century original editions. I am more a practical book collector. So if it's a reprint and it's affordable and I can loan it out to someone, I'm happier with that than like, I'm, I'm not a first edition whore. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're cool and all, but I, it's, it's more about having a lending library. Yes. So in that hotel lobby, I, I pretty much said, you know what, but I, I, I can do this. Like I've got access to tons and tons of books where these things are named, where there's things clearly identified as demons, as fallen angels, as evil spirits. And I can read Latin. I can read French. I can read Italian. Um, those cover many of the languages that these things are in. I can farm out the German, the Hebrew, and a couple of other things. So I'll, I'll see what I can do. And the Dictionary of Demons came out of that. Wow. That is the languages alone. uh, That is an impressive list. (laughs) Just being able to read Latin like that is a that is a strong suit, I imagine. It it definitely helps. Um, Well, I the hardest part about the research for the Dictionary of Demons was trying to track down like primary sources, because there's there's a lot of misinformation out there. And there's a lot Mm -hmm. of stuff where especially in the 1800s, when there was that 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 flowering of uh, occult revival, uh, especially in, in London in the, the late 1880s and so, there were a lot of people who were translating things and they were making kind of like a copy of a copy, but they didn't always have access to their source's initial source. But with the Google Books and the Gutenberg Project and, and most of the libraries in Europe and around the country, around the world, being digitalized, I had this unique opportunity to be able to like, if I could Google whack it, I could probably find a copy of what they were referring to. So, so the hardest Latin bit that I had to do was in German block print from like the oh, 15th wow. century, trying to like muddle through this 800 page tome to find <sighs> basically three lines to prove that somebody had mistranslated them. And they'd just kind of been copying the mistranslation over and over and over again. Wow. That's incredible. Wow. But I'm, I'm really, really big about research. And that's something we've stumbled across, too, in, in some of... Um, Pagan and I have been longtime people interested in the paranormal, keeping you know, just keeping it as part of our life for years. But only recently, um, with this summer, did we sit down and start doing the podcast, meaning that was the first time we got our hands wet with uh, researching and actually trying to suss through some of that source material. And I can just say, for anyone out there listening... The amount of information that gets picked up, recopied away from the original source, mm-hmm. it's vast. And we've just kind of re- keep revising our research methods as we go along, too. Just different ways to try and get through the overshared rumors a little bit and try and get to the yeah. core of it. It's a lot of work. Yeah, because there's, there's a lot of stuff that's a glorious game of telephone. Yes. Uh, yes. Or, and, 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 and occasionally there's people who like actively were trying to get something wrong to kind of like put forth a favorite theory and they sort of like fudge where they got their sources. And if you don't check your sources' sources, you never know that. Bingo. Bingo, bingo. Yep. That is it. That is really <laughs> that's it. That's the answer right there. <laughs> many, many that we found, we've seen the new... Kind of, well, I'm, I'm, this isn't new, the idea of fluff pieces out there, but we recently stumbled across, uh, we were investigating a, a Bennington Triangle case up there in mm-hmm. Vermont, and there was someone that had lied on their birth certificate, or well, I'm sorry, their birth certificate said one thing, they had then somehow the gotten their yeah, marriage yeah. certificate and draft uh, form, they got the date wrong on that, which spun into all kinds of different articles and reports that said all kinds of different things so again check those sources everyone out there very very important yeah and i can't tell you how many times it comes down to what what is basically scribal error one person mm-hmm. is copying a document and they get dyslexic for a minute and they flip a number they flip a letter numbers are really important because if you know 1893 versus 1839 is a huge difference yeah. and one accident that's all it takes mm-hmm. well said well said, indeed. So we have some questions here as we've been talking about elementals recently. When we were planning some content for Halloween, our first thought was, do we talk about demons? 
And we actually went about it. We're talking about how elementals sometimes get misconstrued for demons, especially in in certain cases where someone might just be looking for, again, certain types of evidence. They're trying to get what they're seeing to fit a mold. So we recently Mm -hmm. had Katie Webb on after PhenomenaCon as well. She talked about the same thing, um, thought people facing demonic entities might be elementals. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that as well. I noticed something on a Portals to Hell episode where you spoke about an elemental spirit. Yes. Uh, well, well, first of all, I, I started to notice that there was definitely uh, a portion of the paranormal community that seemed to think elemental was synonymous with demon simply because it was a non-human entity. Uh, and And generally speaking, uh, there, there are some people where they, they, they are under the assumption that if it's if it's a non-human entity, therefore it is demonic. And that's first of all, that's that's wrong. There's so many things that aren't necessarily human, have never been human, but it doesn't make them a demon. A demon is mm-hmm. a very I reserve a very small and very specific like it has to hit a specific set of, of things on a checklist. Um so, so let me be clear with what I mean when I say a demon, because the word itself, if you go through folkloric research, is, is complicated. Um, non-human doesn't seem like it's ever demonstrably incarnated in a human body. Uh, intelligent, if not hyper-intelligent. So it, it's, it's a, a real self-aware, intelligent entity. It is demonstrably malicious, malevolent. Like, it, it doesn't, it's not just mischievous. It's not just misunderstood. It doesn't just, you know, completely not understand what's right or wrong among humans. Like, it gets it, and it's still being a dick. Uh, fixated on people uh, to the point of obsession and often trying to crawl into their skin with possession. Uh, and seems like seems motivated, especially toward like joyriding around in someone's skin, often in a way where they don't seem quite to know what to do, but they they're really there to like cause trouble. So so human intelligent or sorry non-human hyper intelligent malevolent fixated on people. That's my checklist for something that I'll put in the okay. This is demonic. I, I leave the debate of heaven, hell, Lucifer, and all of that to the theologians because mm-hmm. it's. Mm-hmm. A lot more complicated than that. I mean, we've got demonic entities all the way back to Sumer and Babylon and probably longer before that. And mm-hmm. elementals are non-human entities that are tied to elemental features. The Probably the easiest ones are the ones that we're most, most likely to come into contact with are the ones that are connected to the land. Mm-hmm. Different cultures and different folklores have so many different names for these. Um, in the Western esoteric tradition, uh, there's like four elements and you'll have uh, salamanders connected mm-hmm. to fire. Uh, if you go a little bit further east, you might hear that jinn or afrit are connected to fire because of their creation through smokeless flame. And some folks might want to kind of lump them into elementals. That jinn are a whole, whole other, whole other ball of wax, though. Honestly, mm-hmm. um, so salamanders for fire, sylphs for air, uh, naiads or nereids for for water, and uh, gnomes or pygmies for for earth. And that's the Western esoteric system. But uh, a lot of the things that the Celtic folklore uh, talk about with fae and fairies, brownies, pukas, kelpies, selkies, all of that would fall under that idea of uh, a kind of personification, a spirit that is attached to a space. Genius loci, uh, land white is another term, Mm W-I-G-H-T, spirit of place, Uh, everything from an entity that might be tied to a very old tree and is in some respects the intelligence uh, and the being of of that tree to an entity that is an expression of a space. Uh, And it's not only wild places. Uh, There's a few cities where if you're sensitive, you can tap into the spirit of place, who, in my opinion, falls under this class of elemental uh, probably the the rowdiest and the easiest to pick up would be the spirit of New Orleans. Uh, Nola, oh, yeah. if, if you're if you're ever down there, that city has a spirit, and she will talk to you. Wow. Um, I would say Savannah, Georgia, is also like that too. Yes. Oh yeah. Yeah. Savannah, what wasn't quite as in my face as New Orleans, and mm-hmm. uh, Los Angeles also was was pretty clear to me. I feel uh, and like then there's I a felt few that, cities. Yeah. Yeah. yeah where, where there's there's 
there's an intelligence, there's a something, and it's it's bigger than us. One of the things that I find interesting, at least for the, 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 the elementals that I've worked with, is they are at least, although they are not human in nature, they are adjacent enough to the human world that most of them understand the utility of presenting themselves in a humanoid form. That many of their needs and sometimes their demands require them to interact with humans. And so adopting a, a form or a shape that we can relate to is important to them. Oh, that's amazing to, to hear the different aspects from, you know, the Western side to the more, you know, older versions of the Celts and everything else. And then, you know, to hear them, I guess you could call them, I, I don't, I don't know, I guess modern elementals. Yeah, um, the spirits of place and all that. So it's very interesting to see how as humanity shifts and how we grow and how the world changes, how they kind of change with us. It's very interesting. I think when, when we're talking elementals, uh, it would be useful to look to Shinto and Japan and compare it to their concept of kami. K-A-M-I is how it's Anglicanized. Uh, and you will find kami that are tied to wells and to trees and to rocks and to mountains and to just whole wide spaces. And they are an expression of the indigenous animistic religion uh, of Japan before Buddhism came uh, and is still seen in um, in Shinto. Mm -hmm. And there's just some fascinating parallels and a lot of useful ways to try to deal with when our world and our lives kind of run up against or cross paths with these other intelligent, but but differently, differently intelligent beings. Because mm -hmm. I think one of the hard parts about dealing with non-human spirits is, by definition, their psychology is different from ours. And so communicating, uh, identifying their motivations, understanding their goals and, and their emotional responses is always kind of a crapshoot. Mm -hmm. I did notice. I would agree with that. I noticed in that episode of, of Portals to Hell that I referenced when when running into that elemental, I think you queued it up as as you were about to say, yeah, this thing's not going to give us its name. You know, it's, it's doing its own thing. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, wait, 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 this is it. You scratched out a name that was very un uncommon to our Western tongue, I would say. Mm -hmm. And I that was just a moment that really struck me. I like that idea, what you just said about us, that them having a different psychology to us, so we need to be prepared if you ever have that conversation. Um, uh, we watch Greg and Dana do a lot of very interesting investigative work out there using things like the Estes method. And they've mm -hmm. claimed to run across some definitely interesting spirits that don't seem to share the same psychology as us. I really find that a fascinating approach. I feel like we have a lot mm -hmm. to learn. Did you know Chaos and Shadow has moved to Facebook? That's right. We've got Facebook pages for this show and Revelator Paranormal. Like them today. Become a member on our website and gain exclusive access to our Facebook group. There, you can help us investigate the files, dive deeper, and build this community from the ground up. Huge thank you to all of our supporters. Head over to chaosandshadow.com forward slash subscribe and look for the links in the description to join our Facebook. Absolutely. There are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy ratio. And that, that is a truth. Did we not? That's really interesting. We heard that quote earlier today, too. Uh, I was going to say, I'm, am I going, like, am I losing it? No, you're not going crazy. Wow. Synchronicity. Synchronicity is I have not heard that phrase uttered aloud by a person in, I, who knows, probably a good five, ten years, if not longer, let alone twice in, in one day. So, mm -hmm. like you said, synchronicity indeed. Uh, so I That's did amazing. have some questions as well about portals to hell. Michelle, could you tell us if about working with Ka uh, Katrina and Jack, are there any locations that you may have gone out to that stood out more than others? Because I want to say I watched a good two or three you investigating the jail, uh, investigating that that church with the elemental out there. All of those were fascinating. But any that really stood out to you? Well, that each one is a fun learning experience, especially because Jack and Katrina, I mean, I've been working with Katrina since Paranormal State, and, mm -hmm. and she's very, very aware of my process. And Jack and Katrina both give me the freedom to just 
do do things the way that I do, um, which is extremely strict about not giving me any information, just basically putting a blindfold on me and letting me run around the place and vomit out whatever comes to mind. Uh, mm-hmm. And that, that requires a certain amount of patience sometimes, uh, but uh, the results are, are always uh, a fun adventure. The jail stood out to me because... Uh, there are there have been many many times where I have had images in my head and I hadn't really pushed hard enough to be like, hey, I've got time where I'm you know sitting outside of the location. So so, so here's how here's how I felt comfortable drawing what I did because obviously I had to take the the blindfold off a little bit to, mm-hmm. to draw, and they 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 respect my process so much that they got me onto the location. They stuck me in a van that they had specifically parked in a blind alley. So that there was no, there was nothing around me but like some brick walls. So mm-hmm. I couldn't see anything. There was no chance of like, you know, knowing where I was at, which was fantastic. Because when I was like, no, I really need to draw this guy. Like, I, I need to draw this. Uh, I, I, I like, you know, I, I contacted him. I'm like, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to poke. Is it okay if I poke the, the blindfold up a little bit? I need, I need pen and paper, like stat. And so somebody come in, came out and they like gave me that stuff and I was like, oh, and just started scrawling. And my mom was an artist. So of course I'm like, eh, you know, it's, it's passable. But then seeing the picture of the person, the, of the sheriff, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, that, that was, that was a holy shit moment. Uh, I, I mean, I go into all of the experiences with this sort of Zen attitude of, I do not expect success. I do not assume that I'm going to be right. And I do not worry if I'm going to be wrong. And, and in that space of possibility between the two is where I simply allow whatever is going to happen, whatever comes to me to, to flow out as unimpeded as possible with as little interpretation as possible. And it's really hard to resist trying to interpret because uh, mm-hmm. but but the results are, are, are pretty, pretty cool, I, I would say. The other Definitely. one, the other episode with them that really kind of kicked my teeth in was uh, the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. Mm. Uh, I, I perceived something there that I'd never, I hadn't really considered was possible. No, we know that when we're doing investigations, some of the spirits that we deal with are intelligent human hauntings. Like these were human beings who died in the location who are still actually there for one reason or another, usually because they're very wound up with their trauma. But a lot of the things that we identify as hauntings are really just residual energy, um, like like a thumbprint, like the the recording of an incident, often the emotions, and it will appear to like go through kind of a cycle of like this little small film strip of time. I hadn't considered that you could have both of those, that you could have the imprint of the incident uh, that would play and replay. And you could have the intelligent spirit who was also tied to that incident, both of them haunting at the same time in the same place. Uh, And perceiving this, it seemed like a special kind of hell. Uh, Now, I know for for folks who are familiar with Trans-Allegheny, that's when, when I learned, like, taking the blindfold off, like, what I'd picked up and got the verification for stuff, uh, I, I, I told Jack straight up, you know, I, th- this is one of the ones where I'm not going to blame anybody if they call bullshit and say that I, you know, researched it ahead of time. Because if I was mm-hmm. watching it, that's the first thing I would think. And, and I, I, that's a reasonable thing to wonder. I, I think that we should always have healthy skepticism, especially about the television shows. Mm-hmm. And, but knowing, like, you know, myself... It, what what really rocked me was picking up not only the residual haunting of this poor man's body hanging from the rafters and just what had happened to him, but also him still there and still very confused and, and so wound up in his trauma that he just can't quite get out of it. Um, and yeah, I, what I can tell you is that the people standing around me uh, as that was coming through, uh, several people were weeping. It, it was it was pretty rough to to kind of you know, come to terms with that, 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 that can happen. Mm-hmm. That, does. That, that sounds like it would be so sad to just experience, let alone to see the psychic that's walking through there and to actually, you know, be like, holy crap, it, that's, you know, you there and here you are and you're caught up in your stuff. And just, I, it would be, I, it would hit home for me for sure. And yeah, it would hit me hard. I'm not a big fan of like the whole send them into the light thing. I think that mm-hmm. that's very presumptuous. 
I mean, first of all, assuming that I have the power to just kick something to the other side <laughs> when it's not ready to go through its own thing, like that, that somehow I have that, that ability and that I have a right to judge. Mm-hmm. Um, right. I, I think that especially if, if we assume that some of these spirits are human beings or that they are intelligent beings, they have as much agency as we do and they should be respected for their agency and their their free will and their process. But I will say that with um, with that spirit in Transallegheny, that was the first time that I seriously considered, like, is there something I could do to try to just shake him out of it and, and get him to, to let go and move on? Because it just seemed like the, the single most miserable uh, existence. Oh, that's very, that's sad. That's, that's, Mm-hmm. I feel very bad for those stuck in specifically like the, the lunatic asylums and everything like that, because that's in my mind, one of the last places I would want to be those, those jails and such that. Yeah. Very, very depressing to be stuck in one of those. I would imagine. Yeah. I mean, most of it again is residual mm-hmm. and there's always like one or two intelligent spirits, usually where they just haven't quite sorted out their own shit. Uh, in the the jail, there was there was one very very chatty guy who was actually pretty cool. Like I I, I felt like I made a friend talking with him, Aww. and people were like, "Well, why is he still here?" And I you know I asked him, and he was he was like, "Well, he, he was very clear. He he hadn't lived what he thought was a really good life, and he was still pretty nervous about what might be waiting for him afterwards. <laughs> so he figured it was better to be where he was at, where he at least understood what what was going to go on and 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 what to expect from day to day." As opposed to jumping, taking the leap into the unknown. Um, so he hadn't quite, I think, forgiven himself. Wow, that's wow. that's that is it's very interesting insight. And Michelle, I'm glad you touch on the idea there briefly of um, having skepticism in a healthy way with some of the TV shows. That's something Pagan and I talk about too. As mm-hmm. we just we always like to balance evidence that's presented to us, especially with what's going on in the world right now. We're not out investigating anything ourselves. So we're learning through watching other people's means. And I think I think in paying attention to a lot of that, that's also helped us hone in on folks in the community. We really want to talk to people we feel that are doing the most genuine work out there. So. I appreciate you calling that sort of skepticism out, just having that need to have a critical edge when you're looking at any sort of really any information that's coming your way, especially these days. Yeah. No, check everything, question everything. Um, I like the, the true the true Greek meaning um, in Greek philosophy of skepticism is, is is basically the scientific method. Like you want empirical evidence. You, you, you reserve judgment. You don't commit to to one interpretation or another. You spend some time thinking about it and coming to a conclusion for yourself. And I think that we should apply that to everything, our own experiences and, and especially the stuff that's presented to us um, on, on television, in books, uh, I know that there's a bias in in this country, especially that like if someone is on TV or they've written a book, they are automatically uh, seen as an authority. And unfortunately, the medium itself often skews information, even even when the people presenting that information have the the best intentions, uh, because you've got like the team. And the team can have every every intention of like honestly investigating stuff, but then you also have the director, you've got the production company, you've got an editing process, and if the the team is not directly involved in that editing process, they may find that their stuff is misrepresented. And I speak mm-hmm. from experience because that definitely happened a few times on Paranormal State. Uh, so I, I'm not going to hate on any of the people who are just you know out there honestly trying to investigate stuff. But I will say that if your bullshit meter goes off, listen to it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> very, very, very well said. I, I think we harped on exactly those notes that it is it is something bigger than just the team that you're seeing there on the screen. The production staff, mm-hmm. all of the you, whatever, whatever checks and balances have to be done at the network in regards to what is sexy enough for television. Is this a good enough episode that that is exactly what we like to talk about, too. So thank you, Michelle, for for bringing that forward it's good to hear that side of it please continue oh no it's 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 one of the things that i really find refreshing about hellier is (laughs) they've got full and total control and it's no bullshit and they don't pretty it up it's 
it is exactly what it is. It shows um, investigation with all of its weird twists and hours of confusion and just sitting around and having like a strange aha moment and then like nothing happening at all. Like that's that's how it really is. Mm-hmm. It's wonderful. It's just absolutely it. I think that you said it best when you said it's very refreshing in that light compared to the go, go, go. We have to get all the answers in an hour, you know, of television. And granted, that investigation could have taken four days and, you know, between editing and everything, it was shrunk down into an hour. But I feel like a lot of it does get lost in translation. And so as a viewer, we get to see aspects of it we get to see the really pretty aspects you know the really exciting stuff that happens but sometimes the stuff in between that isn't so pretty is also just as valid and that's one of the reasons i love hellier is because we get to see everything all of it yeah yeah especially the spitballing conversations where you're you're sitting around after something (laughs) happened and you're just having the what what the fuck (laughs) moment of like what's really going on no seriously what's really going on Yes. I, yes. <laughs> what I really, really hope, especially with all the awards that they've won with Hellier, is that it will start to shift the narrative for the paranormal shows and, and make some of the television stuff realize that um, I, I know some of the production companies err on the side of this is horror entertainment. Mm-hmm. And so they sort of treat the teams like actors and they really just want it to be sinister, the movie. Um, mm-hmm. or the Blair Witch Project, and it's it's not. Like, it's not always. And I know that they will, uh, with, with Paranormal State, the production company would often get frustrated when it didn't turn out to be scary or mm-hmm. it didn't turn out to be a haunting at all. Um, and they were very married to things being demons 100% of the time, and it just it just wasn't. <laughs> like, right. I'm, I'm sorry, that's, that's actually a, an honestly very rare occurrence. Uh, mm-hmm. And that word demon gets tossed around in the paranormal way too easily. Uh, and frequently by people who, who just, I, I don't want to say that they don't know what they're talking about, but I do. I do. I want to say that a lot of people say demon when they don't know what they're talking about. I, right. I couldn't thank you more for that as well. And really, this this interview happened for us at the, the perfect time because that is exactly what had been going through our minds. We were having these conversations almost to the, the exact phrasing you're using right now, <laughs> Michelle. So, again, you're just setting off all these synchronicity bells in our heads. They're like... Yeah, yes. thank you. I'm glad we have someone that knows, <laughs> really has that that backing behind them to come on here and say it's it's not all demons all the time. I we 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 also bring aboard or um with using Discord, we have a lot of younger folks coming through that are probably in their teenage years, and we see the demon comment a lot. They'll come in. That's the first thing they'll say. My house has a demon in it and you know i'm being something's going on and they they don't really come with too much evidence to it so we like to always just ask some of those more base questions and try and understand where what what is scaring them to the degree they think that they have a demon and when we get through a little bit of that we really often see it isn't so much a demon it tends Mm -hmm. to be something much smaller maybe it's just family life issues that the person wanted someone to talk to and i think yeah I think, like you said, I'm, I'm glad to see a change coming through where people are having a little more honest conversations. As a viewer, I can say that I the long investigation is a fascinating style to highlight. So like you said, mm-hmm. I hope that changes more folks out there. I uh, hope production companies see that as a valid means as well. Yeah, I mean, as somebody who's worked in the vampire community and the witchcraft community for, at this point, what, 30 years? Probably more than that. I'm old. Um <laughs> The, the one thing that those communities have taught me that applies to the paranormal is language is the words that we use are convenient placeholders for concepts, but they and they are useful boxes for putting ideas in. But they are they very rapidly become restrictive boxes. So when one person person uses demon, sometimes that's the only word they've been handed yep. to lump mm-hmm. a bunch of things in that box. So if we're going to understand any of it. When somebody comes to us and says, I've experienced an elf, I've experienced a vampire, I've experienced a demon, the first thing you have to ask them, what do you mean by that? What does that word mean to you? Why are you applying that word to your experience? Because I guarantee there's something behind the word. There's a reason why that word was important to them. And sometimes it's because it's the only word they were ever given. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we're never going to understand any of it if we stop at the words only. Right. 
That is something to ponder. I really that like is, that. That absolutely is. And, you know, I think part of it, too, is I hope also with Hellier, uh, kind of going back to it a little bit, that we will also see not just production companies hopefully taking note of that, but maybe are the investigators will also broaden their horizons and mm-hmm. everything's not just despair. Everything's not just a demon. It's there's a lot more out there. There's a lot of other different types of entities that are not, like you said, not human or spirits that are manifesting in different ways that, you know, we're just seeing so many different aspects that I would really like other investigators to actually just talk about and say, maybe it's not a demon. Maybe it's an elemental. <laughs> Who knew? So maybe I don't it's know. A thought, or, yeah, maybe it's a thought form. Um, yes. Don't underestimate the the human capacity for projecting all of this. Not not to say that it's not also actual phenomenon. That there's mm-hmm. really things that are happening that are extraordinary. And also, this was something created by a person or multiple people. Yes. Michelle, if you have an extra minute to, to dwell on that, I know we're getting here towards the end of our hour, but mm-hmm. if you do have some time, I would love to pick your brain about thought forms because I'd say before, let, let's just say before 2020, really, I don't think they were on my radar. It wasn't probably for similar reasons of it just not being the word on the street. It wasn't what's tossed around in shows so often, but thought forms, tulpas, that idea, or and, and I know there's variations Maybe I should say I know loosely that there are variations within thought forms, PK manifestations, tulpas and the such. But is that a thing you see quite often? Could you maybe give us some sense of how often you might see a, a manifestation that's part of the mind uh, versus some other intelligent haunting or entity? Well, consider that a residual haunting is not an intelligent spirit so much as it is an echo of an event. It is mm-hmm. the imprint of often a traumatic event, uh, but it can include images or, or even like full-bodied apparitions. You may, you may go to a place and see uh, the people involved in a murder, like replaying the key moments in that murder. They are no longer there. Actually, Gettysburg is probably the best example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the people who experience the, the battle on the field of Gettysburg, it defies logic to assume that every single soldier everyone has perceived in that battle died in that bo- battle and is just locked in fight over and over and over again. What you're seeing at Gettysburg in most cases is a residual haunting. Mm-hmm. Which is to That's say true. that it came from people. It is the product of an intense, focused, emotionally charged moment. It was not a conscious creation, but it is a creation of people. A, resi- a residual haunting is a type of thought form. It hasn't gained any kind of independence. It's not like it's going to get up and walk around outside of the script that it's been written. So I think the easiest way to think of thought forms is they're a little bit like computer programs. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they become AI. And it's rare for them to become AI, to gain a level of sentience and kind of take their programming to the next level and begin to enlarge upon it. Uh, One of the first places I ran across the idea of that was... um, in the 70s, there was a, a huge kind of uptick in interest in ESP and paranormal phenomena and UFOs and whatnot. And we, we didn't have reality TV, but we had a lot of things like, you know, In Search Of and That's Incredible and different shows. And I don't remember how old I was, but I got to see on That's Incredible this Canadian group um, doing a table tipping seance with a spirit they called Philip. But the trick was they had invented Philip. Uh, it's called the Philip Experiment. Uh, one of the folks who was key involved in it, uh, Al Peacock, was someone who I, I had the pleasure of getting to talk to at a convention many, many years later, uh, where they sat down to create a spirit on the theory of if they made this thought form um, and they gave him a history where there were some details that were definitely wrong. So that, that that was their tell that they didn't just have, you know, a spirit that was a trickster that was popping in pretending to be him. Like they actively made a couple of his details historically inaccurate. So they knew if they were talking to Philip or if somebody else was talking to Philip, that was the tell that this was their creation. But if they created this, if they put enough energy into it, would this being, would this become something that, that could create phenomenon, that would do table tipping, that would, you know, move things in a Ouija board, that would touch people and have all of the same effects of a spirit uh, along the lines of like tulpas as reported by Alexandra David Niels. Uh, and they they were successful, like they they were successful, like gangbusters. They, they made the spirit and, and there was a point where Philip stopped 
being simply a rote recitation of his programming of what they had created, he started to extemporize. He started to actually engage and like kind of make up new bits that they hadn't put in there. He became basically spirit AI. Uh, Talking to to, to Al Peacock many years later, uh, he was of the opinion that everything we experience, experience as spirits, everything is a creation of humanity. Now, I don't go 100%, but I think that there are a lot more uh, things that we consider to be hauntings that are products of human beings, that are initially products of our minds, our beliefs, our fears, our nightmares, sometimes imprinted like residual hauntings on a location, and sometimes in rare instances, having gone through that process where they are essentially spirit AI, and after a while become completely indistinguishable from a spirit. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Talk about manifesting your reality. It it that that puts a whole other I guess spin to it. I don't know. That's that just fascinates me. We could mm-hmm. talk about that for my, a whole other hour. My favorite my favorite thought form story. Uh I ran across in a John Keel book. And oh, Keel was Keel. investigating a haunting in Greenwich Village. It was on the third floor of this old apartment, like old brownstone or something there, and the figure everybody saw, it was usually a full-bodied apparition that would stalk up and down the hallway. Dark, shadowy, ominous male. He had this big, wide, wide-brimmed slouch hat. The lower half of his face was covered with a scarf. He seemed like he was wearing a cloak or something. Um, and he didn't seem malevolent, but he seemed intense and mysterious. There was an ominous air to him. And, you know, people made the conclusions that they typically do. Did somebody that fit this description die in the location? Was there maybe a Civil War spy where something played out? And, of course, they did the research to the, do the archives to see, like, who had lived in the location? Could anybody have, have matched this? What What is even going on? And enough people had picked it up. In doing the research to see who had lived there, who had let the, the room, they discovered that a, a certain person by the name of Walter Gibson had spent some of the most prolific years of his career writing in those rooms. Walter Gibson was the creator of The Shadow, who knows what darkness lurks in the hearts of men, a, a very popular character of radio plays, who was a mysterious and ominous figure who often stalked around in a great billowing cloak with a wide brim hat to shadow his face, a scarf on the lower half to hide his face. Now, Gibson was one of those writers who was known to be intensely prolific, the sort of like obsessive writer who like will write for 15 hours, fall over, wake up, do it again, like just ridiculously intense. And he wrote ceaselessly. So, so the most prolific time is spent there and the creation of his mind, his character is imprinted on the space, indistinguishable from a ghost. That's wild. <laughs> right. Like, brains are fucking cool. They're so <laughs> cool. Wow. Well, I mean, so here we are. We're recording this one on the day after Election Day. I think that's, I think that's so, I don't, there's something... There is a synchronicity just popping out over and over and over again lately to, mm-hmm. in my mind. I think, I mean, I'm following along with your tweets, so many other people. It feels mm-hmm. to me like now more than ever, we need to realize how much power of change we have just within our brains. Because <laughs> like you said, they're fucking cool. We can put them to work, I think, for us and, and manifest this change we want to see, too. Mm-hmm. If we can manifest yeah. a creature or a character from a book... Uh, what good could we do if we put our brains to actually really, truly, truly sorting out our issues and fixing ourselves? Well, and the flip side is, is if we give in to fear and terror and think the worst and fixate on that, even if you don't intentionally do magic to bring that about, if all you're thinking about is the dark ways in which the world is going to, to fold, unfold around you, what impact is that having? There's a number of writers, um, intensely creative folks, last year and the year before, who were writing books. Um, Chuck Wendig's Wanderers is is one of them. The City We Became is another. Uh, These were written before COVID. Uh, These were written before everything befell us currently. If you go back and read them, you are not going to believe that. Uh, Chuck Wendig's Wanderers, you can go like, like day by day 
because it's the, the chapters are arranged by days. It's it's eerie that the level of stuff that kind of came out there. Uh, so you can simultaneously say that someone who's creative like that is sort of like tapping into possible, probable futures, as I've, I've been uh, frequently saying that in, in, in terms of, of Chuck's particularly like sufficiently insightful uh, speculative fiction is indistinguishable from prophecy. But there's the other side of it, like when Gibson's creation is given so much life that people you know, decades later, see it stalking up and down the hallway. We should take care not to dwell on the negative. I mean, that's not to say that we should never be afraid. We, we should do something with the fear rather than obsess about how terrible everything is. We should use the fear and the anger and all of that and transmute it into what do we want to change? What needs to change? What, what world should rise out of those ashes? And look at that instead and fixate on that instead. That's incredible. I actually did a tarot reading for our uh, Patreon blog today um, that pretty much said exactly what you just said. And so it, it's just the universe speaking over and over again. So everyone pay attention. The universe is talking. <laughs> so it, it's just wonderful to hear other people continue to say what the cards say. So it, it's amazing. Yeah. If you uh, listen, if you listen everything's talking to us like it's mm -hmm. we're, we're not the only intelligences out there uh, we just think we are <laughs> i would say that's true well we have one final question for you and okay. uh i had no idea up until after PhenomenaCon that you were a singer and your your voice is beautiful i actually went and listened to quite a few of your songs and so that being said do you have any new music that's in the works that you can tell us and our listeners about Honestly, I, I haven't. I, I kept the music as very much a thing that I kept for me. Uh, with, with, with TV, with books, um, working with publishers and production companies, there's always compromises you have to make. Uh, and the, the Blood of Angels album exists because I've got a very good friend, Joseph Fargo, who finally begged me. Uh, to to sit down and do a full album because otherwise I just would do you know guest vocals here guest vocals there uh, sometimes uncredited so like if you hear something that sounds like me it, it probably is but you know um, I've got I mean I keep writing music and every once in a while I'll, I'll like sing something randomly off to my Patreon people but mm -hmm. nothing nothing yet uh, and partly that's just a matter of like finding time to sit down and do it again. Uh, Joseph Fargo lives fairly close, but Billy, P uh, William Piotrowski has since moved to LA and now he does movie soundtracks and mm -hmm. is, is doing really awesome stuff and working with, uh, there's a young man who, the band is called Panic at the Disco, I think. Oh, Brendan, I love Panic. Yeah. Brendan Urie? Uh, Brendan Urie. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and just having a wonderful adventure over there. So I don't know if we'll have the opportunity. Uh, but but music is a, a significant part of me. Honestly, what I what I mostly perform these days is my wife and I um, probably this will break everybody's brains. It is not uncommon for us to randomly start creating show tunes about our life <laughs> as we clean or as That's we're driving. <laughs> we will sing made up things to the cats and we will sing made up things about sweeping the house or whatever ridiculous stuff has been on TV and just sort of extemporize <laughs> random silly stuff. And, and honestly, that's, that, that, that's, that's my music currently. Oh, and every once in a while, awesome. having dead mom sing me, uh, sing, sing weird, um, uh, old, old Jewish, Jewish songs to me that I then have to learn. Oh, um, I love that. That's so cute. I singing singing to my dog is a, is a big part of my life as well. I I love to just pick up random random tunes and just go. I'm just doing the dishes over here. I'll just sing them a tune. That's cute. Yeah, yeah. I've got like the the fuzzy butt song and yeah, lolly cat and fuzzy butt a, a bunch, <laughs> a whole ridiculous yeah repertoire. Totally oh, not so the, the deep dark spooky vampire, but. <laughs> Well, I mean, if you ever can produce it, we, I'm sure that the rest of the world, including myself, would love to hear the Fuzzy Butt song. Ah, <laughs> uh, there you go! <laughs> Professional recording of Fuzzy Butt song. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> Michelle, thank you so much for spending your, your evening here with us answering questions. This was amazing. We appreciate you taking the time out of your day. So many of these these topics have just been coming up, 
it it fits so naturally for us that that you would come on here and discuss these just because we couldn't personally we, we didn't time many of these concepts we can't take credit for our own audience just getting this all laid on them at once it, it happened unbeknownst <laughs> to us so this was beautiful michelle what do you have going on that people should be going and exploring if they are new to you and they let's say wander over to your website what are what are some things you think they should know about um i have a patreon and that's where i've moved most of my classes and stuff to an online format uh so that's the like the a lot of my online time uh the most recent one was a field guide to spirits uh the mm-hmm. third class of which was about thought forms so it's interesting that you brought it up because i was talking about it 2 weeks ago <laughs> um let's see i've got the contemplation cards which is just a, a deck of simple words that's mainly for I intended it for meditation. People have been using it pretty usefully for uh, divination, and they are much like my tarot deck, kind of a mm-hmm. smack you across the face level accurate. Ooh. Uh, we love I, that. I, I need that. I collect tarot decks, so I need these in my life. All of them. And, <laughs> and I am uh, the next full nonfiction book that I'm working on is on past lives. Uh, that is by request of the patrons. That's one of the perks that the, the highest level gets is that pretty much they get to tell me what I'm writing next. Uh, and cool. other than that, just kind of trying to boost the signal about the Dictionary of Demons. Mm-hmm. And we've been doing this interview from my Scarebnb Inspiration House, which we picked up as uh, a place to do physical in-person classes and as a training ground for folks who want to do spirit communication and kind of test their psychic stuff. Because it's it's a very reliably, very physically active haunted house and is also the coziest haunting you could possibly have. Like, it's not a scary haunting. So you probably won't find it on many ghost shows simply because it's not rooky spooky. Uh, but if you want to talk to a couple of older folk who just never moved out and happen to die in the house and love it as much as I do, it's the place to be. That's that amazing. sounds amazing. <laughs> <laughs> we're both like ready. We're, we're ready. We're ready to book our stay. Michelle, COVID, can you end now so that we can go? Right. <laughs> I want to go visit Michelle in her spooky house. <laughs> Thank you again for taking the time. We really, truly appreciate that. Everyone out there listening, you need to go grab yourself a copy. The Dictionary of Demons, the 10th anniversary edition is out now. It is gorgeous. I see it's up there on Kindle, hardcover, multiple ways to grab it. Michelle, again, your time, very important. So thank you for spending it with us this afternoon. And we will let you go. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you so much. Thank you. Talk to you you. soon. Bye, Michelle. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.